Welcome to this podcast episode of Narcissists in Divorce, The Narcissist Trap. I'm Dr. Supriya McKenna. I'm a former family doctor, but my life's true work is working with people who have fallen prey to narcissistic relationships of any kind. But I'm particularly busy in the area of divorce. Over the last few years, I've been very proud to become an Amazon best-selling author on the subject of narcissism, and my brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out right now on Amazon. That's the first book in the Narcissists in Divorce series, and the follow-on to that will be out in the spring, and that's called Narcissists in Divorce, From Leaving to Liberty. And please do note that although I use the word divorce, these books are equally applicable to anyone leaving a serious intimate relationship with a narcissist, whether they are married or not. I also have a book out called The Narcissist Trap, The Mind-Bending Pull of the Great Pretenders. And that book might be useful in helping the people around you who are supporting you to understand more about what happened to you and about narcissism generally. I'm also the co-author with British divorce lawyer Karen Walker of Narcissism and Family Law, a practitioner's guide. And between us, Karen and I have trained thousands of family law professionals in narcissistic personality disorder, including judges, lawyers, mediators and social workers. For further narcissism resources from me, please do visit thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com. And that web address has the doctor fully spelt out. Today, Karen and I are speaking with Nicholas Wilkinson. Nick is a highly acclaimed barrister with the top London Chambers One Hair Court, and he deals with both the financial side of divorce and children proceedings. And he's no stranger to complex and high conflict family law cases. Nick even represented Princess Hair of Jordan in the High Court following her marriage breakdown to the ruler of Dubai, Sheikh Mohammed. This was a highly publicised case, which has been described as the most far-reaching litigation ever seen in the UK family courts. He's described, amongst many other accolades, as a serious heavyweight, a brilliant advocate, exceptionally detailed, an intelligent thinker, highly persuasive and compassionate, calm and concise. So now that I've embarrassed you slightly with that list, Nick, I'd just like to thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me on. You feel that it's important for barristers to understand MPD, which is great. But I was just wondering, how commonly do you think your instructing solicitors recognise it where you think it might be present? Uh, You know, Karen and I have done uh, quite a few workshops with family law solicitors. And actually, it's been a bit of a mixed bag because some already seem to have some idea of it. But many, many others seem to experience quite big light bulb moments through the training, um, you know, where it suddenly explains perhaps why they've been struggling with their clients uh, or the clients or solicitor on the other side. So what's your experience of solicitors having um, a really good grasp of MPD? In, in my experience, present company accepted, it, it's still relatively rare. Um, and I've, I've found that um, a lot of the time I'm, I'm having to... Um, identify this and raise it if it needs to be raised um which is why in all seriousness i think um i was why i was so interested in your podcasts and books because i think that the education whilst it's getting better on on this issue is still um lagging somewhat um and i think that your podcast and books should be a, a staple for all law libraries around the country and i'm delighted to hear that you are uh, having these workshops because i think that it is something that we need to get up to speed on and fast and of course, the solicitor is also essentially being 
abused by the narcissist as well so not to the same degree perhaps as the spouse but it it is really difficult for them to cope um you know they might be having to deal with ever-changing instructions uh, as a narcissist moves goalposts and they might be being gaslit by the narcissist you know so they actually end up questioning their own sanity so it's really so important that the solicitor does understand it and is able to recognize the patterns because and they are patterns they are patterns of behavior because of course it means that they can manage the case better. Um, And of course, they can also then highlight the dynamics at play to the barrister, rather than it falling upon the barrister to have to work it out at the conference stage, which is probably a a bit too late, really, to be optimal. Uh, Certainly. And and whilst I have had briefs whereby it is flagged and raised, um, as I said, in my experience, that is is still relatively rare. Um, But I, I think that it is extremely important for the for the profession to understand this better and and certainly the work between the client um the solicitor and the barrister i mean it's it's really it's about teamwork and so if, if they can all be on the same page pulling in the same direction from an, an earlier stage as possible then then that's got to be a good thing and how comfortable are you as an advocate advising your client perhaps to accept an offer which is at the lower end of the bracket, so the, the lower end of what they might expect as an outcome. But you think that actually it's going to allow them to be released from a toxic relationship at a much earlier stage with no further uncertainty, no further legal costs, and so on. Um, what would you do in those circumstances? I would be entirely comfortable giving that that kind of advice. I mean, I see my job as doing what's best for for my client. In terms of outcome, that can take many forms. Um, so, so long as the client is fully apprised of all options as to what they might be gaining or sacrificing if they were to go down a particular route, that includes the good that may be achieved by providing the narcissist with a a minor cosmetic win in inverted commas. I will then, of course, do my best to advise them in relation to each option. But so long as they fully understand all of the implications of the settlement being discussed and know that they could achieve a more favourable outcome, economically speaking, then I would see that as a good day out. Because if the settlement leaves them provided for and ultimately happier, then that must be a, must be a good thing. And I know that sometimes there is a concern that the lawyers can get a little too fixated on the fight itself and not what is best for their clients. And this can lead to bad decisions being made. And so seeking as high an award as possible will suit a huge number of cases. That's unsurprising. But that's not always best for the client. And so that doesn't mean then you're left with capitulation. But ensuring that advice and strategy is tailored to best suit that particular client, not some generic aggressive approach um, that ignores the personalities involved. In that scenario where you feel... Um, very comfortable advising the client to get out of this situation sooner rather than later and that economic gain isn't the only win in inverted commas in a separation situation but you felt that your instructing solicitor perhaps wasn't so aware and might might be um, sort of pushing towards striving for a, a higher economic outcome what would you do in those circumstances um, I would immediately raise it with my instructing solicitor when the client's not present, um, either on the phone before or afterwards. But as I touched on earlier, I think that the teamwork is extremely important. Um, and, and the litigation is, is likely to be more effective if the client, the solicitor and the barrister are all pulling in the same, same direction, as I said earlier. And so the, 
the legal advisors need to be on the same page, if at all possible. And it's not conducive to effective litigation, not to at least raise it, as it could impact on a number of strategic decisions. Then you've just got to hope that you're able to have um, uh, that, that dialogue with your instructing solicitor. You've obviously had to do this a few times. Have you found that the solicitors have been fairly receptive to the concept or have they just sort of said, no, no, that's that's nonsense. I don't believe in labelling. In my experience, it's been it's been relatively well received and that I have yet to have someone turn around and say, I don't believe in that uh, waffle or, or that labelling. Because I don't see it as too problematic because even if it, it is not necessarily your bag, possibly because you haven't read into it yet, or for whatever reason, it, it still is something that you can you can address and consider. No one has just simply dismissed it, in my experience. And so it's simply ways, this is a concern of mine, what do you think we do? And then it's just something that you can bear in mind as you move it forwards. I still think it's most difficult to spot the covert narcissist who very often is female, maybe the mum in children at proceedings or or the wife in quite hotly contested financial proceedings. Nick, can can I just ask, do you find it difficult or more difficult to spot a covert narcissist than the more grandiose type? And what what particularly might you look out for? I, I certainly do. Uh, and this is this is the, the part of this this issue that I find most troubling, in fact, um, uh, because it's <laughs> it's dangerous because not only can you miss it when this is supposed to be something that I feel that I'm trying to educate myself on and still missing this, but, but also you can then incorrectly assume that the covert narcissist is the victim, which obviously would be a huge mistake to make as well. Uh, I, I think it's fascinating that, that a covert narcissist may, may be inclined to be drawn into relationships with, a, with an overt narcissist. I think that's a very interesting idea. And in, in terms of spotting them, I suppose my, my main fear here is, is, and I'm going to dodge the question a little bit, is that there's there's the danger of misdiagnosis both ways. Because as, as lawyers, well, I'm certainly not um, qualified to diagnose. And, and so on this issue, I, I, I'm certainly on the lookout for it. And it's something that I haven't fully understood yet. And I'd be, I'd be very interested to hear your views on this, because I do think it's much, much harder to spot in short. wondering whether your partner really is a narcissist please do check out my online course is my partner a narcissist knowing for sure and if you want to understand narcissistic behaviors you may be interested in my demystifying the narcissist online course both are available on drsapria.com talking about getting it the wrong way around and being sucked in and being thinking that perhaps they're the victim the thing to look out for and I just want to emphasize this the overriding thing is the sense of entitlement that is the giveaway so if they're telling you that they're the victim etc etc but they actually have the sense of entitlement they are the one that wants you know everything all the money um all the cars uh, the children 100% of the time etc that sense of entitlement if there's one giveaway I think that is it uh, for solicitors and barristers to understand and also an inability to 
to care for the children. I always think um, with any couple that I'm dealing with, whether it's in um, the solicitor hat on or as a mediator or otherwise, that um, the commonality between the couple will always be the children, because if they can't agree on anything else, they're going to want the best for the children. In a situation where you have particularly a covert narcissist, um, actually they won't. They'll only be interested in what's right for themselves. So they might say that um, change is very bad for the children. And for that reason, they can't spend too much time with the other parent because they need to be stable and in, in the same place. Yet when it comes to what they want to do, they can chop and change and move house and start one club and then change to something else because actually the timing doesn't suit their particular calendar or diary. And so the focus of the children being at the front of the litigation just won't be there. I think that's that's one of the real giveaways if you listen carefully to what's being said. And I think, as you said, Nick, going back over the chronology of what's happened, um, I think, again, particularly in children proceedings, but also in financial proceedings, if you look back at the behaviour and you can identify that change of goalpost and total disregard for anybody's interests, particularly the children's, um, other than their own interests, that, that's the real, the real giveaway. And then this, this enormous sense of entitlement that, you know, I should be able to go on holiday here, there and everywhere. I should be able to spend money on, you know, have my standard of living not reduced at all, perhaps do other things now that I'm separated um, because actually I'm going to have some more time on my own. But no regard on how money might be spent on the children as a priority. I think those are the giveaway signs, but they're very carefully hidden. I think also you tend to find that covert narcissists tend to be aligned to people who are very good at what they do. So they might be very, they might appear quite grandiose, but they may in fact not be narcissistic. They may simply be successful. Um, and sometimes it's quite easy to confuse um, success and achievement with NPD. Um, again, it's it's back to that sensible entitlement because somebody who's really a high achiever will usually be quite modest about it. Um, I don't know if you would agree with that, Supriya. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's such an important point, isn't it? That, you know, you can be a leader, you can be extrovert, you can be good at public speaking, you know, you can be a barrister, you can be, you know, intelligent, you can be fun, you can be charming, you can be all of those things and not be a narcissist. So very often the covert narcissist will align themselves to exactly that type of person. And sometimes they get it wrong. And actually, as Nick mentioned earlier, sometimes they get it wrong and align themselves with an overt narcissist, a grandiose or exhibitionist narcissist all the different terms for the same thing so yeah I mean they are so difficult to spot but they're not uh, child focused when it comes down to it there's lots of sort of I statements being made it's really all about them and it, you do get the sense that they're using the children just as sort of tools to get what they want um, but the clues so often in the solicitor's correspondence as well I always wish that more of that could be sort of brought to the attention of the judge I know we're reducing bundle sizes now um, and what can be put in statement sizes etc but um, there's a lot of stuff in the solicitor's correspondence which are blinding giveaways really for narcissism whether it's a covert narcissist or any other type of narcissist it's a difficult call I find myself being sucked in I often get narcissists I think probably about one in ten people that contact me are the covert narcissist and they believe that they're 
spouse is the narcissist. They, they, they fully seem to believe it because they projected, and again, and a hugely complicated issue, but they're projecting their own narcissism onto their spouse. So they come to me for help. It takes me a while to work out what's going on, who's who. And, and this is all I do. I mean, I, I live, breathe and, and sleep narcissism. And even I can't spot them. And so well, I, I, I agree with, with absolutely all of that. But what I'm going to sort of highlight my failings, perhaps put it that way, is that the difficulty with, with, with family law litigation is that I'm sorry to say that in, in my experience, it is so common um, for parents to use their children as tools um, and as pawns to attack the other side. Now, so I think when it comes to the covert narcissist, there's, there's more of a concern as to the, the differential between narcissism with a small n and pathological narcissism or, or narcissistic personality disorder. Because what I find very difficult is, is, is when you're both talking about how you identify the covert narcissist, and whilst I entirely agree with all of that, I think it is, is much, much harder because I'd, it's so prevalent in terms of the sense of entitlement, for example. You, you will have clients that just say, well, so-and-so down the road got 75% of the assets. And so I want 75% of the assets. And, and you've got to explain that actually, you know, we don't know what happened in that case. And the starting point is 50%. And you don't just get 75% because someone else got it and all of that. But but there you that can you can start off on, on that foot footing just simply because someone else had it. Or where it comes down to parenthood, there may just be a very, very strong sense that that one one parent is is the better parent, and therefore they're going to do absolutely everything they can to make sure that they make all of the decisions. Now, that could be narcissism, or that could just be an obsessive parent. And, and so uh, I, I struggle with this one more than more than anything else, um, because, because you're no doubt bang on, but it's just something that I find very hard to identify, given how people approach litigation in this area, because it can be very dirty. And with dirty litigation, it makes it harder to identify the, the covert analysis. I think that's right, Nick. But I think that whereas, yes, you know, we've all had clients um, who will say, you know, my friend got 80 percent of the assets. So, of course, I must have as well that, that sort of thing. But those people who are not narcissistic can be talked down from that and will understand even if they have a complete either hatred of their spouse or they've been so hurt or they feel so abandoned that they they want some sort of retribution or revenge um, and they think you know they're, they're sort of blinded by their own emotions of being hurt and feeling let down and feeling that the life that they signed up to has been ripped out ripped away from them through no fault of their own and and, and I do get that, that there's a, a sort of big sense of, well, why shouldn't I have all of this? But I think where you've got just somebody who is a bit emotionally wrapped up in a situation and angry, hurt, so going through that, that grieving process, they do come down from it. And it's why cases which have been quite um, volatile at the start gradually get easier to deal with as an understanding comes in and, and as that emotion subsides because of course the further away you get from the separation the easier it becomes to some extent and I think the big difference with someone who's covertly narcissistic is they don't lose it um, they'll be sticking to their unreasonable proposal 
um, and, and they can't be talked down from it. They don't see the other side at all, even if they say, oh, yeah, you know, of course, I understand they've got to be housed somewhere. But they don't care where it is or how it should be paid for. And they won't listen to the fact that you're creating two homes out of one set of building blocks. And that set of building blocks has to um, build two houses rather than just one, albeit that, of course, mortgage capacity may be one limb to, to that. But that's what I think is the difference that, yes, I completely agree with you that, um, you know, people come to us certainly initially in a very bad place and certainly not at their most reasonable. Um, But um, I think it's the covert narcissist that that pays lip service to listening and doesn't budge. Yeah, no, no, I'm I'm, I'm with you. But I, I suppose there's a difference then also between your own client and the identifying a covert narcissist on the other side. Because if you are able to discuss uh, what a reasonable outcome may be and discuss um, settlement proposals, and then I see how they react to all of that, uh, then then, then certainly you're, you have more control there when it comes to identification. However, if you have someone on the other side, and there is a very ugly stereotype in, in financial remedy cases of, of the greedy wife. I don't, I, I don't like it at all, but there, that is a, a stereotype that's thrown around. And there are lawyers that will push very, very hard for very high awards for, for wives in, in some cases. And so in that situation, it's, it's hard to ascertain without, I suppose, getting them in a witness box um, as to where this is coming from, whether this is um, a, an, ag- an aggressive stance taken by lawyers. And so with the overt narcissist, this is something that is easier to spot along the way. But Supriya, I, I understand what you're saying as well. You can get it from the correspondence as well. But in the financial remedy proceedings, where conduct is so rare, um, it is it is hard to identify until often the very last minute. Mm, no, I think that's right. And, and you are, of course, right in that sometimes it's very hard to understand whether you've got a very aggressive lawyer who's running a case or it's it's based more specifically on instructions I mean often when I'm mediating and particularly hybrid mediating where one can have confidential conversations with each of the couple you know sometimes you'll find that one of them will say well you know I don't really know what I want I'm just going with what I've been advised and and that's not uncommon and, you know, why should it be on one level? Because that's what you employ an advisor for, um, is to give you advice. But yes, you're right. And there, and there is that sort of horrible concept of the greedy wife, which I, I think is by and large wrong and, and probably unfair as well. About feeling vulnerable and feeling scared um, and feeling that life's changing. And then so the, the final point, I think, is, is exactly what you just said, is that uh, someone who doesn't know what it is they want but then the flip side, when I mentioned, say, an aggressive legal approach and aggressive lawyers, the other is if you have a weak legal team. And so you're, the, the client is saying, look, I don't really know. And the legal team doesn't feel that they're in a position to put any pressure on them to settle. And all of these cases go to trial with a, a very high open offer in place, simply because they felt that they didn't want to put pressure on a wobbly client. To, to reduce it. And, and so I think that's an, a, another issue in, in also in the financial world. 
there is another thing to consider as well, because I like to throw spanners in the works and overcomplicate things. But, <laughs> you know, we talked about pathological narcissism versus uh, just narcissism, narcissistic traits. And um, and I always sort of use the, the idea of there being a spectrum of narcissism. So you've got a scale of one to ten. Uh, you want to be at four, five or six. So slap bang in the middle of that scale um, to be healthy, to be to have healthy narcissism, as it's known. So in other words, to have a healthy sense of self-advocacy you can stand up for yourself you know what your boundaries are and you, you stick to your boundaries you know what your needs are and you're able to get them met um, yourself and from other people um, but you've still got empathy so you're selfish enough but you've got empathy for other people so you can stand up for yourself but you're still a, a good person to other people and you can put your needs aside when it's appropriate to, to help other people so that's sort of at four five or six on that spectrum the narcissistic people, the pathologically narcissistic people would start at seven, eight, nine and ten, um, becoming increasingly narcissistic and selfish, manipulative, um, losing more and more empathy as you go up to that up that scale. And the people at the bottom of the scale at the one, twos and threes aren't narcissistic enough. They don't stand up for themselves enough. They don't know what their own needs are. They allow people to essentially walk over them. And they're actually um, they give and give, and give. The people at the other end of the spectrum, the narcissist, take and take and take. So very often you get that kind of opposites attract um, sort of scenario where the people who are victims of narcissistic abuse can be too far down the, the spectrum of narcissism. But the, the, the point of me telling you this is because I think it's really important to understand that when you suffer a loss, if anybody suffers a loss of any type, you know, be that a loss of health or a loss of a relationship or perhaps someone dies or whatever, you become temporarily or you can become temporarily more narcissistic because that's a norm. That's a scale. So you can slide up the scale of narcissism, perhaps from your six to a seven or perhaps from your five to a six. You can become temporarily more inward focused, um, you know, take, just thinking about yourself and having to put yourself first when perhaps you, you wouldn't have done that in the past. So that looks like narcissism if you weren't sort of like that before you've slid up the scale a bit your spouse can think well you know they're a narcissist they've suddenly become narcissistic or or it can look like narcissism to to the solicitors or, or the barristers or anyone else looking in and so actually that can be when people are saying well i'm not letting you see the children unless you give me 85 percent of the house or whatever that again that sense of entitlement that, that can be a temporary thing it's not pathologically narcissistic it's not bad enough to be diagnosable as such, but it can still wreak havoc in the area of family law. It can still cause problems in trying to sort out these arrangements, child arrangements and, um, and the finances. So I think that's kind of important to say as well, just to sort of muddy the waters even more. That will get better in time. So although you're, you, know, you are in this fight or flight situation, which could cause the narcissistic side of, of, of anybody's personality to rise, to a, a sort of a more dangerous level, it, it will come back down. It's again back to the lawyer's understanding, the lawyer's role, not to put their client in a situation where they're making settlement decisions when they think they're not yet up to it. And possibly the involvement of family therapy or divorce coach or someone who would, will just help with the emotional disruption at the outset of the breakdown of the marriage to get that person into the right emotional shape to make you know what are really quite major life-changing decisions. So I, I do think you're going to have a bit of time or, or at least have enough time to see whether there is a change. My brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out now. 
For more information and online courses about narcissism, please do check out my websites, thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com.